My goal coming up was to one day be the best sports writer the world had ever seen. I'm being serious. That was my goal. In college at the University of Delaware, during summer internships at the Patent Trader in Cross River, New York, and the News Gazette in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and my first job at the Nashville Tennessean. I wanted to be the best, unrivaled, the best. Then, in 1996, I arrived at Sports Illustrated and found myself glued to a desk, fact-checking stories written by Gary Smith and Rick Riley, Sally Jenkins and Steve Russian, Bill Knack and Lee Montfell. And it was then that I first realized two things. There's no such thing as a best sports writer, and it sure as fuck wasn't me. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Chuck Klosterman, the one-of-a-kind, do-it-all author, sports writer, music writer, one-time New York Times magazine ethicist. This is episode number 160. Let's sling some yay. All right, first of all, Chuck, thank you so much for doing this, obviously. You're on your, uh, all right, so you've had two cups of coffee, and you're on your first uh, Dr. Pepper, and it's, yep, yep. What, what time is it where you are right now? 10.38 a.m. <laughs> how, how many more coffees, how many more Dr. Peppers will you have today? This is a little different. If I was writing today for real, because I start, you know, at about 6.30 now, um, and go to about 11, so if I was really writing, I might have one more in there, but this is the last thing I'm doing this morning. After this, I'm going to go deal with the kids. So this is so, so just, I did a little work this morning, but not that much. Right. All right. That's good. Are you, um, are you finding pandemic time good for writing, bad for writing for yourself? If I was single, it would be fantastic. I'm, I have no doubt whatsoever that if I was a single person right now, I would be able to complete an entire book in the span of whatever the pandemic is, even if it's the best case scenario. With a family, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, it's just, uh, it's probably the most complicated writing period I've ever experienced. Um, But that's just the nature of things. I mean, like my whole, you know, when I was a single person, I used to often write at night, sometimes almost all night. Then you get into a serious relationship and you move that back into kind of the afternoon because it's weird to be working at night when you're with somebody sort of. And then when you have kids and your hours change, it kind of moves up. So like I've continually creeping up. Like the fact that I start working now at six or six thirty in the morning, I, I can't I would have told the younger version of myself that that's how I was going to be when I was 48 or whatever. It's, I would have thought something terrible has happened that I got <laughs> sent to a prison camp or something like I, I would have never, I was never like that. I mean, there was, when I, when I first moved to New York and the bars would be open till four, I would often come home around that time. So I would not, you know, the idea of getting up in two and a half hours, that seems crazy, but you know, that's life in some ways it's better. Like the obstructions do make me more efficient. Like I, I, I don't, uh, right now, like I used to be this person who was like, well, I can only write when I feel like I have something to write. Now I can just do it. You know? Do you feel at all, I think about this a ton. You and I are the, the same age. We graduated from college the same year. We're both 48. I used to think there was something, this is going to sound corny, right? But I think in my head, the, the edgy, 
I'm all right, I'm living in New York City and I'm single and I'm writing for Sports Illustrated and I'm going to sit in the corner of a coffee shop until two in the morning and this is going to be amazing and blah, blah, blah. Now I'm a suburban dad with two kids and like you, I'm, I'm, I'm tired by 10 and I'm watching some reality TV show with my daughter last night. It was The Masked Singer. I don't even know how this happened in my world. Do you feel like this stuff impacts us as writers, good, bad, negative, positively, neither? Well, it has to. I mean, I'm a totally different person than I used to be. I mean, I, I, I although that was going to happen anyways. I, I mean, I, you're always sort of seemingly kind of working. The only perspective you have is the one that you're in, right? That's the one limitation or one of the limitations of being a person is you have this sort of fixed perception. I mean, if I went back and read my first book or my first three books, probably, I feel like I would be reading the book written by someone I have almost no relationship to. It would, it would you know, I, if, if in fact, if somebody were to read those books right now, uh, they would have a better sense of what I was like at 28 than I would. Because if I thought about myself at 28 now, like if you asked me, what kind of person were you like, you know, in the late nineties or whatever, all I would be doing is projecting my current self into like a less fat version of me. Right. Like that's what I would, I would somehow still think that I was the person I am now back then. I wasn't at all. Part of the reason why I don't go back and read things I've written in the past. I, I don't like that experience. Do you think it all impacts, this is going to sound dumb, but word choice, paragraph length, um, approach to an article, the way, the length of time it takes you, the mindset you have going in. Does, you know, does, like an old pitcher, you know, like a Bartolo Colon throwing at 48 as opposed to 28. Are we, are we different just by the basis of getting older? I think that the, the things you're talking about change as a person matures and just gets better. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if I was like, you know, we, you talked about like living in the suburbs and having kids and all that stuff. I don't know how much that changes the structure of what I write. I mean, maybe it does. I, I don't know. The main thing is it's just what you, what I liked as a writer when I was young and what I like as a writer now are very different. So I would like to believe that that change sort of, I guess almost like taste. Is that what I'm talking about? Like your taste in writing? Because that has changed, changes the way I do things. I mean, I think when you're a young person and when you're first getting into writing, you're really interested in sort of um, like the, I don't know. I mean, the craft of it or whatever, the, 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 you know, can I write a beautiful sentence or whatever? And then as you get older, what you see is important about writing, at least for me changes. And then the most important thing becomes how effective it is and how efficient it is. So, I mean, that's sort of how I think now, like when I'm, when I'm editing my work now, all I'm doing is making senses shorter and ideas clearer. That's all I'm doing. I mean, you know, I, I write the whole thing and then I just try to make it smaller. Yeah. Wait, so when you were a younger writer, when you look back, if you ever do look back and read your old stuff, do you find it overly wordy? Do you, do you find yourself saying, God, why didn't I cut, why didn't I trim half the fat off of this thing? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would change almost every sentence. I've said this before and it actually is true. A dream life for me would be, if someone paid me a million dollars a year just to keep rewriting Fargo Rock City, 
<laughs> that I would just keep rewriting it every year. I would just rewrite the thing every single year. I mean, at, at the end of, of 35 years, it would probably actually be good. I mean, if I could do that, and I would love that process. I would love to do that. And, and I would love if the books never went out. If I, if I just worked on it, that would be the dream. I remember there was an Eminem album that I actually liked. And I heard Eminem mm-hmm. talking about the album, and he was slamming his old album. And I was like, wait, I kind of I kind of like that album. What do you, you know, and I was actually disappointed that Eminem didn't like the album. Is it okay for us to slam our old stuff knowing that people actually liked it? I mean, I don't think you necessarily have to slam it or criticize it, but the only people to me who go back and read their old writing and think it's great are, are kind of sociopaths. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. I don't, I don't relate to that idea of, of, if you talk to a musician, if you talk who's done it a long time, like if you talk to Paul McCartney, he may still like the early Beatles songs, but he does not perceive them as the achievements the audience would, because he would see sort of all the limitations and all the things that he wasn't yet able to do as a person that age. I mean, I mean that's that's always the thing about that's weird about this. It's like what audiences seem to really like from writing is that they don't they want like the emotional blast from it like they want to just feel like this person is a real person telling how he really feels and you know all the things that i think people who write for a living care about are very secondary to audience so the fact that like you know if somebody were to tell me that 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 they prefer the earlier books I wrote to the ones I write now, I would be like, okay, I disagree with you, but that's fine. Like it would bother me. Right. I mean, it would be those people paid for everything else in my life. You know? Right. You have a super weird buffet of a career. What do I start with this? And then I, you know, I'm just sort of searching around. I find a 2015 profile you did for G for GQ, Taylor Swift on bad blood, Kanye West, and how people interpret her lyrics. I've actually always wanted to have someone on here who has done a fair number of celebrity profiles for magazines like GQ because I, I find it one of the most fascinating little tiny mediums that we've got going. And um, I just want to say your lead real quick was you have a quote, that's a pap, she says as we leave the restaurant, pointing toward an anonymous gray car that looks like the floor model in an auto dealership specializing in anonymous gray cars. Her security details suggest that it's probably not paparazzo because there's no way a paparazzo could find us. It's such an unglamorous unassuming establishment. But as with seemingly every other uh, inference she has ever made, Taylor Swift is ultimately proven right. The guy in the gray car is taking her picture. This annoys her, but just barely. I've literally never done the Taylor Swift GQ profile. When you are doing those stories, obviously you have an awareness. It's not just me and Taylor Swift going for lunch because Taylor Swift wants to have lunch with me. She has the awareness. I'm not just having lunch with this guy. Mm. What is the mindset and what is the approach going into stories like that? Well, I mean, it's a completely constructed event. I mean, everybody is aware of it. So the, I mean, the mindset has changed a little bit because in the past, say 20 years ago, I think the idea was more that the writer has access to this person that nobody else has. It's less of that now. Like now people feel like they have access to Taylor Swift because of social media in a way they didn't before. Um, So, you know, I, I think the best way to do it or the the way I do it at least is, is I just meet the person, ask them things that I'm legitimately interested in, as opposed to things that I assume I'm expected to ask them, which sometimes overlap and sometimes don't. Um, 
and then you just get you know you 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 ask all the questions you have the kind of a um like a um uh, an interesting conversation that is unlike a normal conversation in the sense that you're meeting them for the first time and yet you can ask them things you probably couldn't ask someone that you've known for two years in many cases um and uh, and then you know you 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 leave the experience and and like the beginning of that story, uh, my thinking always is, if I got done with an interview or a series of interviews with someone, and I ran into like one of my smartest, funniest friends, and they said, "What was it like?" Whatever is the first thing I would tell them is how I begin the story. So I like in that Taylor Swift example. After I got back from, I guess I was living in New York still at the time, I got back from L.A. where she lived. And if somebody said, like, what happened? I think that would be the first story I would tell, which means it is inherently the most interesting part. Yeah. 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 Again, this is not a realm that I know very well. Do you, does she show up with a handler? Is there I don't a handler? get this. You did, what, what, so what do you consider the John Rocker piece you did? You, you, don't, you don't see that as a I, yeah. interview? That what? He was a That's nobody, though. I know, but he was kind of a nobody. He wasn't really... I mean, yeah, I've done... I guess back in the day, I did, like, you know, you'd sit down with Gary Sheffield in the Dodgers clubhouse. Okay, so are you saying what's it like to sort of deal with, like, the super famous? The super, okay, super so, famous. Yes, I mean, because it's like... Okay, so Taylor Swift, Britney Spears, I guess Bono was like this... You know, there's there are people who are... Who it's like their fame, in some ways, is the most interesting thing about them. Like or the most meaningful thing, right? Um, and that changes things a bit. I mean, you know, it's like a um, you, you. I always want them sort of to to talk about that experience because I think it does show um, their level of self awareness. Which I guess you know that's one of the main things you say. What's the mindset going into these pieces? Well, I think that. Um, if you're dealing with somebody uh, who is sort of in this kind of rarefied or occupies this kind of rarefied cultural position, um, one thing you do want to find out is what is their personal perception and self-awareness of what that means and how that happens and how that sort of changes the way people look at them. Um, and that's, you know, that is at times hard to do because, uh, their natural inclination is either to never confront that idea, that in fact that their success is almost predicated on their ability to sort of block that from being part of, of their worldview, or it consumes them to such a degree and that it's really the only thing that they ever think about when they're by themselves, that they can give an answer that actually distracts from the reality. And then you got to find ways to kind of push it back. And that's when the interview becomes more adversarial. When you're sitting from Taylor Swift, who, I mean, at the time, you can make the argument was the biggest star in the world. Is she open to this idea and sort of exploring this? And if you find out she's not, do you just sort of cut away or do you keep trying to dig at it with the subject? Well, you know, it's, it, there's a generational aspect to it. I mean, she is somebody, because of her age and because of the mediated world that she grew up in, you know, she was somebody who was obsessed with, like, VH1's Behind the Music. That was her favorite show. She definitely looks at media as an aspect to what she does for 
uh, a career. Like, like her music and the perception and understanding of that music is shaped not by just the record, but by uh, her public life. So, so she was like, let's talk about these things that are significant to the person who is already obsessed with me. Whereas when I interviewed someone like Jimmy Page, who you know came through the 70s, he still sees the media kind of the way it is portrayed like in the movie Almost Famous, where he assumes I'm trying to wreck his career and that anything I write about Led Zeppelin records is going to change the way people have um, of hearing them. And it's going to change their, their one-to-one autonomous experience. So, you know, he thinks media is only bad. Taylor Swift thinks media is mostly good, and that changes things too. Is there, so Taylor Swift is probably, I'm guessing, 15 years younger than we are. Does that impact the dynamic? Like, is it, is it easier to interview another 48-year-old than it is to interview someone who's, you have 15 or 16 years on? Easier. I don't know if it's easier or harder. I do know that, like, using the same example I just used, I described Jimmy Page and what he looks like, how he is dressed, how his hair is, how he carries himself. In the Taylor Swift profile, you will notice I never describe any aspect of her physicality at all. Which when I was getting, you know, when I started in newspapers in the 90s, that was something you did with a feature. You know, it's like, like, because the assumption was part of the thing the reader wanted was to know what the person looked like and all these things. So like if it, when I look at like newspaper writing I did in the 90s, that was always a key part of, of feature writing. But now I realize that if with someone like Taylor Swift, if I talk about the way she looks, that will become the only thing some people will take from that article. So that makes it harder, yes. Whereas if it's an old white guy, you can kind of just write what he looks like and nobody cares. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Um, in terms of getting Taylor Swift to sort of want to communicate with me, the age might be like maybe somebody her age in some, it might have a little easier time. Although, you know, she probably looked at me as a pretty old person. So maybe there was some level of respect she would have purely out of my age. If she's the kind of person who has respect for people who are older than her. I've, I've noticed that with, with covering athletes sometimes it's a lot of times, you know, uh, say a college age athlete is used to the idea of coaching and people telling him or her what to do. So they almost look at an older journalist in that role, you know, whereas like talking to somebody like Kobe Bryant, um, he was a little younger than me yet felt older than me and talked to me like somebody um, who understood himself better than he would have projected my understanding of him, if, he, if that makes any sense. I mean, that's also should be logically true, but you know, uh, um, the age thing is, is complicated because the age thing as it applies to artists and sports figures and stuff is so different than the way it applies to normal jobs. Is it possible when you're sitting across from a celebrity in that sort of context, you know, like the goal we always say is make them, make it conversational, make them forget as much as you can that it's an interview. Is that actually possible with people who have been interviewed that many times or are in that big of a sort of spotlight? Well, I, I don't do that. I, I think it's like, you know, there's like this style like like Susan Orleans or whatever where she'll like hang out with somebody for two months. 
in that case, I can understand where that's what the goal is, to eventually make it seem as though you're just kind of integrated in their life. Um, but, you know, I would never allow someone to do a profile on me where they hung out with me for two months right. or, or a week even. I would never allow that. So I don't really like doing that as the interviewer. Like, I will say that having, you know, having and maybe you had the same experience, being covered by other people and being interviewed by other people has really changed the way I look at conducting interviews. You know, there was a period in my life in the early 2000s where I was interviewed more than I interviewed other people. And that really shifted the way I look at this. What I always appreciated when someone interviewed me was a journalist who said like, look, this is what I want to know. And I'm asking you this because we're doing an interview. Like I, I, nothing was worse than somebody who somehow gave you the, you know, I mean, straight up lied and acted like they just wanted to talk to you and they were just interested in you and they had a completely different vision of why they were doing that story. So when I do profiles, I do not try to convince the person that we're going to have some kind of uh, conversation that's organic and some kind of relationship that's going to extend beyond the interview. Like, I, like the Kobe Bryant thing, I was like, this is what I want to know. I want to ask you these things because I've been thinking about you for 20 years or whatever. I want to ask these questions. And, and it's not going to have any kind of relationship to chit-chat or, you know. And I could tell he was like, good. So the idea of trying to make it a real conversation, for one thing, if when, that does happen sometimes. Like when I, um, I interviewed Jeff Tweedy once from Wilco. And of probably of all the people I've ever interviewed in my life who are famous, he was the most like me. Like I, like I actually thought to myself as it was happening, it's like if I lived in Chicago and we'd probably be friends or whatever, you know. Um, but that doesn't really translate on the page, like because the the thing is, it's like that. That's the, this is the advantage documentary filmmakers have. It, right now, we're recording at the week the the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance, has started. You know, and the things that the Bulls and Phil Jackson and all that are, are saying in the context of that interview isn't always that insightful, but you can see the way they're saying it, and that tells you how they actually feel. So, if you get into a real conversation with somebody, but it's a print interview, there's a limitation to how that's going to sort of transfer into the article. So, you know, I, I'm just like, I want to know the things I want to know. That's my thing. Like I, there's things I want to know and I want you to tell me what you think of this, you know, and that's it. I have the Kobe piece in front of me. You, you wrote that in 2015 also for GQ and you literally wrote, knowing that Brian has to leave the cafe by 10 o'clock, I decide to take a calculated risk. I tell him there's no point pretending we're about to have a normal conversation because nothing about this meeting is remotely normal. I just want to directly ask him all the things I've always wondered, wondered about his life. And from the moment I say this, I can tell this is what he wants too. And I was thinking like, it's really a beautiful thing. And I've actually become this way more too. Like I used to be like, hey, blah, 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 blah. And like try to form this, forge this kind of commonality when to him, it's just an interview. Like he has no interest in being my friend he doesn't really care about my kids and my dog at home, so why bullshit about it at all? I just thought, that's the first time I've ever seen any profile, someone just lay it out, look, this is what I want to know, this is why I'm here, we both know what this is, here's what I'm doing. Well, and that was a, a weird situation because I was told I only had an hour with him, and then he came 15 minutes late, 
it did end up going much longer than that. He seemed to really enjoy the conversation. Then I went out to my rental car and he followed me out and asked me a bunch of other things. But like, um, but I really felt like I got to get to this. But it doesn't always work. I mean, this is going back a ways. But um, do you remember uh, uh, an artist called The Streets, Mike, Mike Skinner from England? He was a white, uh, I say he was a white rapper would kind of be inaccurate. He had a, he had a kind of a, a very kind of musical style of, you know, a, a dialogue driven sort of musical. He had a couple of really good records from that period. And I went to England to interview him and he was very young. And as a consequence, this style of being like, I want to get into this and know these things. He was like, what the fuck, man? Like, what's going on? Like, I think he thought, I thought you were going to come over here and we're going to drink and just chat or whatever. So it does work a little better. I think with slightly older people when they're very, very young, it can be intimidating. I think to have someone you don't know suddenly asking you a, a very aggressive question. Do you have less patience for younger for the 22 year old than you did when you were 22? I must, I, I assume I, I don't know. Maybe, no, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I had less patience. Maybe I have more patience now. I feel like I'm a more patient person than I was when I was 22. Yeah. The thing is when I was 22 interviewing a 22 year old, I would have never fucking thought of our age at all. It would have never crossed my mind. Yeah. Like I didn't think, I didn't really think about age in that way until I got older. I mean, that's, it's why, you know, there's so many novels and movies and even songs about people who reach, you know, the middle of their life. And it's a kind of this alienating, complicated experience. It's because there is no universal experience as strange as aging. And it happens, you know, it happens to everyone. And it's so odd. It is so odd to meet someone who had to learn about an event you clearly remember. When I was in high school, I remember our, my junior history teacher saying, like, he just can't get over the fact that the kids he's teaching, this is in 1989 or 88 or whatever, he goes, I just can't get over the fact that for you guys, the moon landing seems the same as the Civil War. And I didn't even really know what he meant when he said that. Like, I was like, no, it's not. They're different. But now I know what he means, that they were both extensions of received knowledge. And it's real odd for any person to suddenly look at their own life as somebody else's version of history. I've had this conversation about 17 times lately about 9-11 and comparing the experience of being in New York and 9-11 to the pandemic. And to my kids, like you said, the 9-11 is a civil war to them or the moon landing. It's just this thing. Well, it's super weird. I remember this, this happening you know, maybe five or six, maybe 10 years ago, where I would read stories where teachers in schools were alarmed that kids in class would make jokes about 9-11. But like, of course they did. I mean, like when I was in high school, we made jokes about Vietnam all the time. Like we thought, you know, it was this distant thing. It was, you know, it's just hard to have something be that meaningful to you and that important to you. And then to see someone else judges it as like something they saw on TV in, in a documentary that they barely cared about, you know? You have a, a lengthy and really fascinating history writing about music. My favorite story you've ever written, by far, hands down, is uh, a, a piece you did for Grantland. It was basically the guide to the life and times of Kiss. And mm. loved, 
probably have read that seven times. It's a gazillion words long. It's the, it's just for people if they want to look it up. It's the definitive one size fits all, except no substitutes, massively comprehensive guide to the life and times of kiss. And the vast majority, I would say, of music critics through the years and people who write about music through the years take big shits all over Kiss. And they're just a gimmick and blah, 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 and the music sucks. And yeah, maybe they have two good songs, but that's it. You obviously have this fascination with Kiss, and I'm fascinated by your fascination with Kiss. Why do you have a fascination with Kiss? Well, you know, I, the, the, the most honest answer is it just happens. You know, it's just like you get interested in something and that interest perpetuates itself. You know, um, I guess if I had to give a more complicated answer, it's very easy for me to differentiate between art that I think is the best art and art that is my favorite art. And to me, there is no artist more fun to think about than Kiss. I mean, almost every concept that you can consider within the idiom of rock music, within sort of the concept of how things are bought and sold, within the, the sort of the vision of like how interpersonal relationships and personalities dictate the work you end up doing, that can all be understood through KISS. Now, it's, that's not the only thing those ways can be understood, but it's the way I do it, you know, or the way I have done it. Um, and, you know, I do like KISS records. They were like one of the first bands I ever really liked. I mean, I, when I was a little kid, I remember, you know, this is probably second grade, maybe, first or second grade, um, in the 70s, KISS was on 2020, an episode of the news program, 2020. Okay. And I can remember this so clearly because like, okay, the first, there were three stories in that episode. One was about the, like the MX tank, this new tank the military was developing. One was about the grain embargo. And then there was a feature on kiss. And then, you know, I went to recess the next day, you know, and other kids had watched this too. We'd play kiss outside. Um, you know, if you had moon boots, you could be ace freely or whatever, you know. So then I, I then, you know, it was like, oh, Kiss was just this thing that I, you know, it was like this really was like a cartoonish thing. I get into pop music in like fifth grade, what's on the radio and all that. But then I change at one point and I get exclusively into metal because of the Motley Crue record, Shout at the Devil. And then I, that's all I care about is metal. My brother-in-law was in the Columbia Disc and Tape Club. I guess it was just the Columbia Record Club at the time. And for people who don't remember this, uh, you could buy uh, albums through the mail. And the, 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 the kind of scam was they would send you a card every month. And if you didn't check the no box on the card and send it back, they just sent you the record. And he didn't do that. So he got sent Animal Eyes, which was like the second Kiss record without makeup. Uh-huh. And he gave it to me basically going like, ah, yeah, I know you're like Motley Crue. Here's like who Motley Crue is trying to copy. So I got into Kiss during the non-makeup period. And, and you know, the thing is, there's this belief among most people, most music people at least. It's like, oh, Kiss is something that you like when you're a little kid and then you grow out of it. Um, and I've had the opposite experience. Like I'm, I'm more interested in Kiss now than I was when I was young. All right, so I mean, I'm just fascinated by this. So you, the story you wrote is just a breakdown of their careers. And I agree with, you know, probably 90% of your album takes. And you wrote, they reunited with makeup and they released this album in 1998 called Psycho Circus. And you wrote the long awaited reunion of the original Kiss lineup and the worst album the band ever made. Freely, Ace Freely's Into the Void is the strongest cut on the album and also terrible. 
grade F. When you're a music writer, which I think of you as, at least to a certain degree, and you shit on people's uh, music, which I've done too, certainly. Do you ever feel guilty about it, bad about it? Do you ever, do you have to, if you're shitting on someone's work, do you have to sort of, is there a weight you should bring to it? Or does it not really matter because it's just fucking kiss and music and big deal? Well, you know, yeah, I do feel that way sometimes. There, there are many things I have written about musicians over my life that I feel weird about now because either my um, opinion was ill-informed because I just didn't know enough at the time and I hadn't listened to enough or was just sort of unnecessarily mean. Now, the Kiss example is a little odd because I would disagree with anybody who thinks that somehow my treatment of Kiss was unfair. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have probably, as a writer, helped Kiss way more than most other writers. I feel like I can safely argue that the reputation of Kiss has been improved by my existence as a writer. Also, Kiss is different than other bands, which is one of the many things that, that, that draws me to them. So everything Kiss does is for commercial purposes. They, and they never in any way hide from this. They never claim that a decision they made is based on some personal drive inside of themselves that they could not, you know, in any other way satiate. You know, it's always like, we're doing this, and you're going to pay for it. And as a consequence, they give me more agency as a fan. That's one of the advantages to being a fan of the band Kiss. It's not like being a fan of Bruce Springsteen, where you almost have to, um, you know, it's like you're not really a fan unless you put him on this kind of intellectual pedestal where you see him as this person who's somehow, uh, you know, like you're lucky to be experiencing this. Kiss isn't like that. Like, you can be a Kiss fan and dislike every member of Kiss. I can't think of many other bands like that. I love that you gave music from the Elder an A-. minus. To me, that shows more than anything your sort of understanding and appreciation of Kiss because it is universally mocked, this concept album gone bad. And if you actually listen to it, it's not a bad album. And I feel like that cements your bona fides. Well, no, it's the most interesting Kiss record because it is one of the rare or like... Not one of the rare situations, but one of the most lucid illustrations of a band who was like, we want critics to like us. We, are, we do not want these people, all the things people have said about this, about us, we're going to preview wrong. And then when it failed commercially, it made them rethink this whole idea. And it really sort of changed the way that they perceive art. I think now the guys in Kiss, at least Paul and Gene, now work and operate from the position that any art that has any purpose beyond providing people with a commercial commodity they want is idiotic. And that is an idea that exists in our culture that nobody is willing to accept as their own personal view. But here again, it's like I'm talking about Kiss in this way. Most people who are listening to this, unless they really like Kiss a lot, are like, this is stupid, you know, this is idiotic, but he's He's thinking about Kiss in this way, you know. Um, but that's one of the great things about being a writer. I mean, it is the greatest part about being a writer. I get to create my own reality. In every other extension of reality, I am just a pawn in that world. But, like, on the computer screen, that is, like, I get to make that into what I want. And the thoughts that I have can be transferred directly there. People are like, well, you know, you should write a movie script or do you want to get involved in television writing or all of these things? It's like, 
I don't like collaborative writing. Yeah. And those are collaborative things. I mean, I, if I was a musician, I would be someone like Prince. I write everything. I play everything. I produce everything. And that's it. And if, it's, and if there's problems with it, different problems are mine. So I had Chris Jones on this podcast uh, maybe a year ago. And Chris spent a lot of time in a writer's room recently. And I, um, I have a book, this, uh, one of my Lakers book that HBO is you know, making into something. And I have not been spending time in the writer's room. But I went for one day to the writer's room. And they give you free lunch. And there are bowls of M&Ms everywhere. And there's free drink. You could have all the Dr. Pepper and coffee you want because they just bring it to you. Someone's bringing it to you. I'm not a huge fan of collaborative writing either, but it seems like the atmosphere of collaborative writing would be a nice vacation for about two weeks because you get free M&Ms. No, I can buy M&Ms. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I don't, I, like, I, 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 uh, I, I mean, this. No, but don't I, you hate the torture? I'm actually being serious. Like, this is my problem with it all. I know it's the only way to go about it and I get blah, blah, blah. Nobody wants to hear the whiny writer and the torture, but like, I do struggle with the isolation of it all. And I do struggle with like, especially when I'm in the deep writing mode and I'm writing a book and every day I've tried X amount, that shit does beat me up. And as I get older, it doesn't get easier. I actually thought it would get easier. It does not get easier for no, me. No, it does not. It gets way harder. It's but, much, I mean, I, I am much slower now than I used to be as a writer. It, it, I, I am much less comfortable with what I produce. It gets much harder. You're right. So free M&Ms in a room. It is unrealistic to want a, a creative life with a high aspect, a high element of freedom and be like, there's no downside to this. Like there's right. gotta be a downside. It's just part of it. Like it, it can't be, um, it can't all be good. I mean, I just, there are so many parts about writing and publishing and sort of having a life that to some degree is, is open to public interpretation and all these things. There are many aspects of that that are bad, but it has to be that way. I mean, it's, it's just, it just has to. It's like, because the alternative is a life where those problems are removed and you're in a factory and you're doing the exact same thing every day. And your entire existence um, is based around what can I do in the one third of my life? I'm not working. Like, you know, there's a third of my life I'm working, a third of my life I'm sleeping. I have that last third, you know, if you have that kind of job, I suspect that third becomes everything for me, the third of my life when I work and the third of my life that are, that's my own. They're kind of the same. They really aren't that different. Yeah. And no, that's, I guess what I want. Yeah. I definitely have learned this every on order. Like there's no, there's no pleasure without the pain. Like there's no feeling of accomplishment without the shit you have to go through to accomplish it. Otherwise, how is it an accomplishment? And I just think a lot of people want to take the quick route and have the enjoyment and have the bowl of M&Ms, but you got to get to the bowl of M&Ms. And I also think that the, the kind of personality that is drawn to writing or really drawn to creativity in, in, in general um, is the same kind of personality that tends to be very inward looking. And the more inward looking you are, the more difficult, the most rudimentary experiences in life are going to seem. If you're not a very introspective person, you're going to be happy. 
but you really can't be a writer without being an introspective person. Like yeah. these things are often tied. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you see like, you know, there was a, a real relationship between a lot of jazz musicians and like heroin use. The same kind of person who was gravitates toward the, 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 the way jazz is made and the way jazz sounds is also the kind of person who gravitates toward the idea to sort of like, I want to experience something that's going to completely shift my reality and make me feel like the world is different. I mean, like some things are connected. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who just finished reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. So I have a question. If Malcolm X were alive today, what jersey would he get from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise? You wouldn't get any. Oh, I get it. Malcolm X, Mr. Big Shot, thinks he's too good for 503 Sports jerseys, even though they're handcrafted, reasonably priced, and feature all sorts of throwback leagues. It's not that. Yeah, I bet he doesn't like the Denver gold. All because they had Vince Evans at quarterback. Why is Malcolm X blaming their passing game on Vince Evans? He was a nice guy. Dad. No, no. Malcolm X is too good for a Steve Young LA Express jersey. Steve Young is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Is Malcolm X in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Dad, Dad, calm down. It has nothing to do with any of that. Really? Yeah, relax. Malcolm X has very sensitive skin. So if you went to 503-sports.com and ordered one of their fabulous jerseys, the fabric would have to be denim, or else you'd break out in awful hives. Oh, why didn't you just say so? Uh, I want to ask you about one more thing you did. You, um, I remember picking up a New York Times magazine a bunch of years ago, turning to the ethicist, which is one of my our favorite sections, and seeing Chuck there, and thinking, like, how the fuck did this happen? Like, how did you end up the ethicist? Not in a bad way, just shock. One day you open it up and there's Chuck doing the ethicist. How did that happen and how did you find the experience to be? Well, how did it happen? It's, it's something I, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted to do. I just, I used to read that column and I was, I was like, this is, this seems to me like real intellect, intellectually stimulating and also a real difficult kind of writing because the space is very limited. You have to work under the parameters of the New York Times, which is hard. It's like, like their, their style book is, is difficult in some ways, uh, for, for expressive writing at least. And I also realized the diff, I like the difficulty of the fact that you're constantly dealing with problems that are unclear. Like if there was a clarity to the question, there wouldn't be any reason to write about it in the ethicist, mm-hmm. which is odd because when I, you, I would read the comments, that was often what people wanted. It was really, it was a strange thing. Like what people seem to love about the ethicist is anytime somebody presented an obvious problem and then you attack the person for not seeing how obviously immoral it was like that. They really enjoyed that. It was, it was odd. So I wanted to do this at the time. Uh, the editor of the, of the magazine, uh, I had known just a little bit, from uh, working at the, I, I had been on contract with the New York Times Magazine in the early 2000s. So then years later, you know, Hugo Lindgren, he runs the publication. Um, and I just, I sent him an email. I think it was on New Year's Eve. And I was like, this is going to be crazy. I don't even know if you're looking for an ethicist, but I would like to do that job. And uh, I want to know what I got to do to get it. And um, he was like, that's interesting. So anyways, I, I, I get the job and I just start doing it. 
you know, uh, I would say that's probably the, the, the biggest bummer of my career. Why? I thought I would be great at it, and I was just okay. My hope was that I was going to take over the ethicist column and essentially become the Johnny Carson of that thing. That I would do it for so long that it would almost be as though the idea of who the ethicist was was me. Like, I really wanted to be great at it, and I thought I had the potential to be great at it. But I wasn't. I, I, I wouldn't say I was terrible, but it, it, I, I didn't. I wasn't as good at as I wanted to be. And it was incredibly anxiety creating. I would work on the column, you know, and then um, I would send it in to, uh, you know, the production cycle. And I would send it in the production cycle on a Friday. And then it would come out in the magazine the following Sunday, so not that weekend, but like mm -hmm. you know, just the way magazines operate, you know. And at that point, it would be locked, and I would just constantly rethink in my mind how I should have rewritten it. And I and, it, and those days were just awful, like just just wow. knowing that I could no longer make any adjustments to this thing um, that that I didn't feel uh, was as good as as I wanted it to be. Um, and and that was just every week. I mean, when I stopped doing that, I was like, my wife actually was like. I'm glad it made you unhappy. And I guess it did. Like, I'm glad I did it in retrospect, but it did make me unhappy. Well, let me ask you a final, final question. I always ask everyone this. What's your biggest asshole dealing with an asshole moment? You know, we all have our John Rock or one degree or another. What's your biggest dealing with an asshole moment from your career? I was doing a story on Radiohead. And at Spin Magazine, one of the essential things is when you did a profile on someone, you had to find one other significant musician to talk about the musician you were profiling. So uh, I'm doing the story on Radiohead. I've went to England and talked to all the Radiohead guys, but now I need another person. So the person that we get is Michael Stipe. And I'm talking to Michael Stipe from REM over the telephone. And he's trying to describe to me why Tom York is great. And his argument is like, well, you know, there's, there's certain people, you know, um, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, myself, who could essentially sing the phone book and people would be, you know, emotionally moved by it. And now Tom York is in that class. And I always thought that was interesting. It was like he couldn't think of a third person beside himself. That's awesome. Like I just thought that was so weird. But right. like he could he could name anybody who's ever existed who has the ability to sort of transmote emotion just from the way they present. And it's like, you know, like, like he could have mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Like there are so many people he could have mentioned, but like he mentioned it to him. He mentioned himself. I always thought that was odd. And in some ways, when I think of that profile, that's the main thing I think about because everything that I got from Radiohead for the most part was grounded and covered by other people. I mean, like, like Alex Ross wrote a profile of Radiohead, that's much superior to mine, you know? And, and somebody said like, what's valuable about this? I was like, well, there's one sentence in there when you really understand the way Michael Stipe looks at himself, you know, which isn't even part of the story, but you know. It must be an honor for you to appear on this podcast. I mean, there are writers like Hemingway, Shakespeare, Perlman, must be really, really a big, a big deal for you to be with one of the greats of all time. I will say this, Jeff, like we don't, this is like the most we've ever talked in our life. Well, Chuck, it's been great. I, I'm so happy we did this. Seriously. Thanks a lot. I want to thank today's guest, Chuck Klosterman, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. 
You can follow Chuck on Twitter at cclosterman and visit his website, chuckclostermanauthor.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sing and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the fantastic MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.